Welcome to Sound of Truth Weekly Interview, where we have conversations with ordinary people to learn how our extraordinary God is at work in people's lives and in the world today. I'm your host, Brett Morani, and I'm excited you've joined us. For the second week in a row, I have Kyle Brady in the studio with me. For football fans, you might remember that Kyle Brady spent several years playing in the NFL, started off with the New York Jets. He was the ninth pick in the first round of the 1995 draft. Bill Belichick actually wanted him with the 10th pick, but the Jets nabbed him up at number nine, and so he went to New York, played under Bill Parcells with the Jets. Belichick then came to New York and was on Parcells' staff. That's correct. So uh, actually, so my first, my first two years playing in New York for the Jets, we had uh, Bill Parcells was not the head coach. It was Rich Kotite, who actually had coached right. the Philadelphia Eagles prior. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, he um, had a degree of success in, in Philadelphia, and he had some great players down there with Reggie White and Jerome Brown and, and Seth Joyner and this great defense they had. And then Randall Cunningham was the quarterback. So the owner of the Jets at the time was Leon Hess of Hess Oil, and um, oh, okay. he hired Coach uh, Rich Kotite, and uh, it didn't work out very well. Coach Kotite was a good man and a, I think a good offensive coordinator and tight end coach. He played a little bit of time as a tight end in the NFL, but uh, just it wasn't working out for him as a coach. Unfortunately, we won four games and lost 28 in my first two seasons in New York. So that was a How really was difficult— How that for you, being from Penn State, where you went undefeated your se- senior year, probably only lost a handful of games in your entire— college career you had success in high school what was that like it was one of the most difficult experiences i had ever been through because as the first round pick and you know picked as high as i was i was expected to come in and kind of resurrect the franchise be the savior of the franchise so to speak and there was problems that went so far beyond just trying to plug in a a quality tight end you know quality young tight end and you know the learning curve and the uh, the adjustment to the NFL, even if you're at, with a good franchise and, and with good coaching, is a difficult one, much less when you're uh, in a place of such disorder. And the New York media market can be absolutely brutal. So I was pretty uh, thrown under the bus, you know, as, as uh, oh, this guy's a bust. He's no good. And there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes that I never really shared with the media that were in, in many ways limiting my ability to reach my potential. Even as a young player, I had a lot of nagging injuries. I mean, some of them were so painful that I wasn't sure I was going to even be able to continue to play mm-hmm. and maybe even not even fit, able to finish out my first contract. I had uh, what's called a sports hernia or technical name is osteitis pubis. I, I could barely get out of my stance in my second year and I was waking up with searing pains all through my uh, stomach and groin and all these type of things, but um, I look back on that as very much a, a wilderness wandering, you know, mm. in a difficult period that I think I was looking within myself and saying, okay, am I going to fashion my identity around the here and now and, uh, and and the money and the fame? Because I really wasn't getting a whole lot of positive out of it, and it was really a, a difficult and painful experience, not just physically, but even mentally, mm-hmm. to deal with that kind of uh, ridicule and criticism and that kind of thing. And it's the first I was really exposed to it, especially at that high level. But um, obviously on the the side of sports performance and, and football, uh, the owner was very dissatisfied with the results. So he went out and he hired Bill Parcells to be the head coach who had won two championships with the New York Giants and had just taken the New England Patriots to a Super Bowl in 1996. So he was still a very hot commodity as a coach. And he, he brought him in for the 1997 season with the Jets. Let me press in a little bit on the spiritual wilderness experience. Oftentimes are the seasons when God works the most to draw us to himself in terms of our walk with him. What was your experience in terms of your faith walking through those wilderness years with the Jets before Parcells came in and turned came in and turned things around really? Yeah, I guess I'd have to, to say the beginning of it, rewind a little bit into the end of my mm-hmm. college career. I mean, God really started to get a hold of my heart, break me of a lot of my selfishness and my um you know, worldly desires and just started to make, help me and 
become aware and realize uh, deeply how how much um, everything that I had was ultimately from him. And mm. uh, I really just there was a a point in time it was around two and a half to three years into my college years where I. I basically just figuratively laid my football career on the altar and said, Lord, take this and do as you please. And uh, whatever may become of it, I, I'm going to try to do with everything I can to honor you with these abilities. And um, and that meant if eventually I could make a living on this, I'm going to try to honor you with that living and that, that just be a steward of these assets that you may entrust me with. And then um, in, in these physical abilities, every time I'm out there in the field, I'm going to... my life first, so to speak, was Colossians 3.23. My, my, my occupational verse, so to speak, was whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as unto the Lord and not for men. And I just thought, um, you know, there's so many different things you can play for, so many different motivations. Um, some can be worldly fame, the adoration of people, including the opposite sex, money, you know, and, uh, and, and maybe the power and the prestige and all the things that come along with it. But I knew, I, I mean, I was becoming increasingly evident to me through my relationship with God that those things were all transitory and passing and fleeting and not worth living for. And, uh, so I went into my professional football career with that kind of mindset, like I'm going to honor him with it. And that's what made it in some respects even more difficult. I just didn't understand why it was going as poorly as it was. I mean, there was just tremendous amounts of physical pain due to these injuries that I, I kept on sustaining. And then there was tremendous amounts of emotional and spiritual anguish with uh, the amount of criticism that I was taking. But um, That's a hard the- lesson for us as believers to learn, isn't it? That if we surrender to the Lord, we're expecting, He's going to make everything great. Yeah. Instead, yeah. in his wisdom, he allows us to walk through some valleys for us to grow stronger in Christ and experience his grace at a greater level than we realize. Yeah, there's so many different deep implications to like mm-hmm. these assumptions that we sometimes have going into uh, our walk with Christ and our our, our expectations for what that it means that if we're going to hand our life over to him, we think that maybe it's, well, you know, the, the prosperity gospel, isn't that what that's right. all about? Ultimately, if you're going to follow God, he's going to make sure you get cash and prizes. Mm-hmm. And it's just not that way. I mean, he said, you know, in this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, heart, I have overcome the world. And he also said, you know, if they ridiculed me, if they, you know, basically beat me and crucified me, what do you think they're going to do to you mm-hmm. when, if you stand up and you use my name in public and you say that you're my follower? You're going to probably experience like treatment to what I did. Now, you know, the, the, the ridicule and the difficulty I was going through was not necessarily faith-based, but it was still very painful. And, sure. Uh, it still very a much trial shattered, nonetheless. I mean, very much shattered my assumption or belief, if I had any at that time, that, uh, you know, if you follow in, in the footsteps of faith— that you're somehow just going to, everything's going to be, the road's going to be smoothed out for you. Right. It was the furthest thing uh, from what was I was experiencing. And um, I just uh, needed to just continue to go to him and to constantly rely on him and plead for his ability to persevere because I, at times, just really wanted to run and yeah. just uh, get away from it all. So going back to your college years, you had some, really some glory years at Penn State University. I, I wasn't much into football growing up. Basketball, baseball were more the sports I followed. But when I got into college, I fell in love with college football and following it. And I was in seminary when Penn State, when you had that run in the fall of 94, went undefeated, had some great talent on that team. I think offensively, of course, of yourself, Kerry Collins, Bobby Ingram, Kajana Carter. These names were just... Joe Jervicious. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and our Joe, offensive right, linemen who really weren't even that, uh, you know, they don't get a whole lot of media attention, but we had several offensive linemen play 10 plus years. It was really unusual for a Penn State football team because Penn State historically uh, under Joe Paterno was kind of known for conservative, you know, three yards in a cloud of dust kind of football. 
northeast weather, all that type of thing. So they would win games like 14 to 10 or 10 to 6, even things like that. You know, not that exciting, but they would manage to get the job done. But here, here comes a team that um, he had a couple of really strong recruiting classes. Mine, and then the one just after mine was probably one of the best in Penn State history. The the recruits that he brought in the year out when I was a redshirt freshman and it was an ex- offensively incredibly explosive team i mean we were putting up at least 38 points a game i think on average yeah that year it I all mean, came together didn't it it really did i mean yeah. and he he had tried us and he had put through us through the fire so to speak to sort of purify us and get us to the point where we were sticking together we were unflappable i mean there was no circumstance you could put us in that was going to break our confidence and our belief in ourselves and our ability to go out and score points and um those trials and difficulties he put us through as a coach really came to uh be excellent um, groundwork for some of the difficulties we would face down the line when we were uh, tried very in, in very difficult circumstances and in adverse circum- uh, places uh, yeah. geographically. Um, so a couple of the games that we had to play. So you, your senior year was the the big year where you went undefeated and unfortunately didn't get to play for a national title because this was before, for some of our listeners may not be old enough to remember this, but back in the day, national championships were determined by sports writers largely. It was a poll thing. It was a coach's poll and an AP yeah, writer's poll. back in poll. the day. Yeah. So it was just the media guys and the coaches. Uh, that, you that, didn't get that, to settle it on the field. No. I mean, uh, the conferences at that time were locked into bowl games. That's so right. The, Rose, the Big Ten Big and Ten the was with the Pac-10 always. Locked into the Rose Bowl. The uh, Some of the other conferences, like the SEC, had the Sugar Bowl and things mm-hmm. of that nature. So, you know, it, it just so happened that particular year, it would have been an ideal situation for what eventually came along further down the line, which was the BCS, right. which even if they were locked into bowl games, the top two teams were able to meet because the only two major college football teams that year that had undefeated records were ourselves and the University of Nebraska. And the University of Nebraska was also coached by a great coach, Tom Osborne. Mm-hmm. And uh, up until that time, Coach Osborne had not had any national championships. So this sentiment and the belief among a lot of people and a lot of sports writers might even tell you this, that that's what swayed their vote, was that Joe Paterno, well, he'd already been to three national championships. He'd won two. He'd already been highly decorated. It's now, time let's, for Tom let's to give get one his. to Osborne. Yeah. You know, it's not, even though Joe had a heck of a team, we're just going to say, ah, it's Osborne's championship. Yeah. You know, and actually a, a couple of years before that, uh, often Times they would split the national championship between right. Georgia Colorado Tech and Colorado, and Georgia Tech, Miami yeah. and Washington. Mm-hmm. That was not uncommon, but that particular year, it, it also would have been a year that you would have thought that the polls would have split, but um, but they didn't, and it's it's kind of a shame we, they were never able to get together those two teams on a field. I w- even though I wasn't a Penn State fan growing up, I really followed you guys that year and pulled for you. I was a Big Ten guy, grew up in Big Ten country, so I always wanted to see the Big Ten do well. And with all the respect in the world for Tom Osborne and Nebraska. I really felt like you guys were robbed that year and should have been a split title like you mentioned back then. Yeah. But I was especially disappointed that there wasn't a system in place to let you guys play it out on the field because I really believed it would have been a close game or it would have been an upset. I think you guys could have taken them, really. I mean, you you rolled through teams in the Big Ten. Now, when did Penn State join the Big Ten? I'm trying to remember. It was during your time there, yeah, wasn't so it? so I committed to Penn State University in 1990, my senior year in high school, and uh, I committed to them when they were an independent. Yeah. And actually, and I had a chance to play three years as an independent. Yeah. It was announced, actually, my at the end of my senior year that they were going to join the Big Ten, but for scheduling reasons, it wasn't going to happen for the first time until 1993. So my first three seasons, 90, 91, 92, we played independent. You, which was senior year of high school, for those who got maybe confused on that. Yes, 1990. Your senior year of high school, school, they announced that, that Penn State was going to join the Big Ten. But it did. Took, just like right now with Oklahoma and Texas coming into the SEC, it's going to be a couple of years or 
it's going to be like that. Yeah. Seem to move quick. And then but now USC, USC, USC. UCLA <laughs> and go and join the Big Ten, which is yeah. crazy. I oh, mean, West Coast teams. We're living in crazy Midwest, times for uh, college yeah, these football. super conferences that are now springing up, and it, it's probably only going to continue to change. We could chase a rabbit with NIL, too. And, yes, and all there's that. all kinds of things yeah. that could be addressed there as well. But uh, so as it went, it was actually a great time and a great experience to have played there because it was a transition time. So my first few years, we would go all over the country playing some of the best and the mm. big boys that we played University of Texas, Alabama, Miami, USC, BYU, mm. Notre Dame. I mean, um, it was a lot of fun to uh, kind of go around and just challenge everybody and see see what they had and then and be challenged, you know, by playing those teams. And then we'd play teams that were kind of more traditional, like Northeast teams, like University of West Virginia, uh, sometimes Maryland, um, mm-hmm. Boston College, Syracuse, things like that. Good programs. And actually, the funny thing is, is Joe, he was always a proponent of the Northeastern teams joining together in a conference. And um, there Just was what, they wouldn't do it. varying reasons for why the other schools didn't want to, but uh, he was a little bit of a visionary. He thought that mm-hmm. the future of college football probably would have to do with conferences. And he was a huge proponent of the playoffs. He thought that the college football should have a playoff mm-hmm. and that uh, it should somehow, you know, come from the higher up. And, and uh, anyway, those things are all hindsight now, but um, it was a, yeah, it was a great experience having the opportunity to play not only in the independent world, but then also eventually in the conference world. Nebraska was voted the national championship in both polls to a lot of people's disappointment, obviously. Did you ever play with or become friends with any of those Huskers? I did. Yeah, and that was always an interesting conversation. I bet. And, uh, you know, I had a chance to see their ring and I showed them that actually we, we had a ring made with a number one on it. And because um, we said, well, who is anybody to say that they were better than us? Because we won every game we played on the field and we won them, most of them convincingly. Right. I mean, we actually beat Ohio State 63 to 14 that year and they actually had a very talented team. Mm-hmm. So that was telling to the amount of talent we had on that team. And uh, I think that's probably the worst uh, loss in Ohio State history. And, um, even to this day. So, uh, who did you play in the Rose Bowl that year? We played Oregon, University okay. of Oregon, mm-hmm. and uh, we beat them, I think, 38 to 20. And it was a little bit of a nip and tuck back and forth game until we kind of pulled away at the end, got a couple scores in like the uh, late third and fourth quarter. But, um, and we, Nebraska went to the Orange Bowl, I and believe. They played University of Miami. Yeah, Nebraska yeah. was 11 0. They played a 9 and 2 Miami team. And Miami wasn't quite the, the Miami that they of were the past, maybe a yeah. couple years earlier. Mm-hmm. They had a few good players on their team for sure. Uh, and it was a somewhat contested game, but Nebraska kind of pulled away in the second half. They, they it wasn't the blowout like they had the following following year though against florida no no and actually yeah so it turns out they ended up winning another championship the very next year and yeah. tommy frazier was the quarterback he was a dynamic player lawrence phillips was a mm-hmm. running back and uh yeah i'd have conversations though zach wiegert in particular i played with him here with the uh jacksonville jaguars and okay. then a guy named brendan stye was another guy on their team that i played with and uh, we would get into some pretty lively banter about who would have won that game oh i'm sure you did that's fun so what was it like playing under paterno Oh, it was an amazing experience, something I would never trade for anything. I mean, um, he was just a, a great role model, a great mentor of young men, and he truly did it, I think, you know, for the right reasons. Um, he bought a house in the 1960s when he, late 50s, early 60s, when he was just an assistant coach. He took over the head coach, uh, head coaching responsibilities there in the 1965, I believe it was, but he bought a house with his wife off campus and lived in that house to the day he passed away. So for him, it wasn't about the money. It wasn't about the prestige or the fame. It was about just his joy that he got in uh, coaching a competitive sport in which you, in, in the medium was one in which you could have such a huge impact on young men. And um, that's something that no matter what, you know, they take down or take away in regards to wins or statues, uh, that will never be taken away. The, um, the life lessons he taught all, all of the young men that played for him. 
believe it or not, while I was in seminary, and in our seminary library, there was a biography of Paterno. And I read it. And it's one of the reasons why I followed you guys during my seminary years was I was so impressed with what Paterno had done there and the way he had done it with integrity and the way he also, from my understanding is, really the influence and the money that was brought in by the football program, this may be an exaggeration, correct me if I'm wrong, but really helped catapult Penn State into a major research university. Mm-hmm. I think that's accurate, actually. I mean, the uh, the fact that Penn State had the amount of success they did throughout his tenure as the head coach, I mean, he came in to recruit me, and I never forget what he said. It was one of the reasons that I decided to go there to play. He said, you know, this was, the, again, in the late 80s, I mean, early 90s. He'd been head coach there since 1965. He said he used to have this high-pitched Brooklyn accent. Any player that ever played for him can imitate this. He said, you know, Kyle, I, I never recruited a football player to come to Penn State that didn't either play for a national championship or play on an undefeated team. And, and I look... That that was the, the voice he used to kind of speak in. And, and I looked back through his record and I was like, you know, it's very true. Well, every three to four years, he'll either have an undefeated team or a team that's, let's say, 10 and one or nine and one back then they played only 10 games. Mm-hmm. And that was in the hunt for the national championship. I thought, what an impressive statement to be able to make yeah. after almost 30 years at the same school. And just the uh, stability of the program. You know, how many times do you see a coach stay in one place for that long? I don't know that it'll ever happen again. Joe Paterno yeah, arrived him at and Penn Bobby State. Bowden. And- Bowden, exactly. I mean, but Joe Paterno arrived at Penn State in 1949, was a he- an assistant coach under Rip Angle from 1949 to mm-hmm. 1965, at which time he took over. And was there all the way through to like 2010, 11, right around there. And it was... It was just an amazing run. And, and yeah, I could just go on for a long time telling you the life lessons. I mean, just the, he would teach us about the importance of discipline and accountability to your teammates and punctuality. I mean, we had to be at breakfast. So every he was sing- molding young men. Oh, completely. I yeah. mean, uh, you know, even the program and the, the structures that he had created around the program were indicative of um, his beliefs. So, I mean, they're really, people talk about their college experience. They say, oh, wasn't that great? You used to wake up at 1030, go to class if you felt like it, you know, go out to the sub shop and get lunch at, at noon or whatever. I said, well, that sounds like it was quite experienced, but it certainly wasn't my college experience. I mean, every single day, the entire time we were there, we had to report to mandatory breakfast between 7 and 8 a.m. Between 8 and 2.30, we had to get all our, all our classes in because at 2.30, um, you went to meetings for, for about an hour to an hour and a half. Then you had practice from 4 to 6. 6 to 7 was dinner. 7 to 9.30, as a freshman at least, you had to attend study hall, mandatory study hall. Mm-hmm. Attendance was taken. They would have proctors that used to walk around to make sure we were getting our work done. And it was a very highly structured uh, experience. And I, I would liken it to very similar to going to a military school at the Naval Academy or mm. West Point, mm-hmm. but uh, without the actual military part of the experience. And it's for, for a young guy who came out of high school relatively undisciplined, uh, I really kind of bucked against it. And it was a really difficult transition for me. But in hindsight, I wouldn't change a thing because it was exactly what I needed. I mean, the old saying that uh, idle hands do the devil's work, I think mm-hmm. there's so much truth to it. And especially when you're in a college campus and there's so much trouble you can get into, it was very beneficial for me to have a lot of my energy taken by the appropriate uh, outlets. So when you speak of self-discipline, and I, I read where you applied that to getting your law degree. Could mm-hmm. you just touch on that before we go back and talk some more about your college and playing days? Yeah, actually, I'll never forget my first year of law school, which um, notoriously is kind of the most challenging because they're teaching you to think in a different way and uh, using the Socratic method on you, asking you questions, putting you on the spot in class. And and it was difficult, you know, mentally challenging. And I was actually sitting there my first semester in law school, looking around the law library, reading case after case. And, and it was, you know, it's mentally tedious. But then I thought to myself, you know what? I'm used to tedious. I'm used to difficult. I'm used to this kind of environment. But it was all, it was a little bit more so in the physical realm. 
but it was also mental as well. I mean, you know, by the time you get to the NFL, the playbooks are about three, four inches thick. There's some mm. definite complexity there. So you got to spend a lot of time studying if you really want to be the kind of player that and reach your potential, you know, and, and be a, a great player. And um, so I thought, you know, I'm not, I, I, I'm not going to let this break me. You know, having all had gone through 13 NFL seasons and training camps with guys like Bill Parcells, Bill Belichick, Tom Coughlin, and then five years on top of that with Joe Paterno. I said, I know I have it in me that if I if I treat this like it's my full-time job, which by that time I was 38 years old when I went to law school, so I understood what a full day's work was and playing for those kind of coaches. I'm going to treat this like a full-time job and I do everything I can t- to be successful here. And if that's not good enough, then so be it. But I didn't want to um, just you know shrug it off and say, I'm not going to finish this or, or do it uh, just because it's too difficult. So I'm thinking about 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, where Paul uses the athletic world as an illustration. He talks about self-discipline that athletes have and how he applied that to the spiritual life. I beat my body and I make it my slave. And so what I hear you saying is the self-discipline in the physical and in the mental realm as well to be a professional athlete carried over for you in the mental drudgery of law school. Mm-hmm. You were able to apply those life lessons that go all the way back to Joe Paterno and Penn State. Oh, absolutely. And that's why you got your law degree. I think drudgery is a, a very good word to use for it because uh, I, I heard, I'll never forget a, a story that I heard. Um, there's apparently there was a, a woman who went to see a concert pianist and he was a great concert pianist, world renowned. And uh, he went and he put on a, a, an amazing show, lasted like an hour or two. And after the show, he greeted some of the people who were there in the audience. And this woman came up, went up to him and said, sir, I just want to tell you, you are a genius. And he said, ma'am, I appreciate that. But before I was a ge- ever a genius, I was a drudge. And, uh, uh, meaning that this person to be able to put on that kind of show and pull off that physical skill to the extent that he did had to practice every single one of those keystrokes over and over and over. And all of those, those things are not always pleasant. You know, like when you're, when you're doing repetition after repetition on a hot August floor today and mm-hmm. it's 90 degrees out, 80% humidity, and you're hitting a one man sled or you're going against your other 280 pound teammates, smacking against each other time and time again. And you're working hand positioning and pad height and, you know, flat back and, and foot drive and with the you know wide stance and all these different things that you constantly had to do over and over and over it's absolute drudgery and there's nothing glamorous about it people see Sundays and they see running out there in front of 80,000 people and the national television and again the adoration and the prestige and whatever else but they don't see the 10,000 hours that's been put 10, in thousands and thousands yeah. and that's just the physical then there's the mental you know mm-hmm. going in and watching the film mm-hmm. and studying your opponent and understanding tendencies and propensities and understanding your opponent's strengths and weaknesses it's I mean I, I, I like in it in many respects to let's say a boxer watching another boxer you know in regards to the individual matchups you want to watch that guy's movements and and where he might show any time type of sign of weakness something you could take advantage of and that spent that takes sometimes hours to develop an awareness of mm-hmm. uh each week as you're preparing for each upcoming opponent and that takes it's a lot of time and it's a lot of sacrifice joe paterno established that in you that perhaps if you'd have gone to another school with a different coach may not have made it to the NFL, you think? Or what do you think? Oh, yeah. I, I don't think that I would have made it uh, as well prepared as I was. Mm-hmm. I went to the NFL assuming that uh, most players were going to kind of be somewhat in my image, you know, with a very similar background in regards to awareness of the the need to pay att- extreme attention to detail, to having like a sort of an academic awareness of the game as well, because that's one thing that the coaches there imparted to us was, an, uh, you know, a, a good sound awareness of the mental side of the game. And uh, when I arrived, I was, I guess, somewhat pleasantly surprised to know that, no, uh, not everybody was quite as well prepared. And I think Mm -hmm. that I, yeah, I certainly attribute a large degree of the success that I had in the NFL to the, uh, those foundational years at Penn State. Joe Pa, as he was affectionately called, had an incredible run at Penn State. 
sadly, it didn't end well. And I think about David in the Old Testament, incredible man, used the Lord mightily, such an amazing influence on so many people. And yet there is that stain on his resume. And we have to be honest and say, you know, it's horrible. Bathsheba, the adultery. Some scholars believe it wasn't just adultery. Some believe it was rape. Most powerful man in the country calling a woman to come visit him in an age in which women didn't have the rights they have today. Can you say no to the king? You know, so we don't know for sure on a that. Bit of a power discrepancy there, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Big time. So, so perhaps. But we know he's guilty of adultery, perhaps rape, and definitely murder. Yet we don't remember him only for that. Sadly, in this can- cancel culture that we've been living in for some time now, uh, Joe Paterno's name might still, for some people, all they're th- going to think about is the controversy surrounding how he handled the Jerry Sandusky scandal at Penn State. A tragic situation, horrible to think about, criminal pedophilia going on, uh, using that power that he had, fooling everyone. I'm talking of Jerry Sandusky. And for people who remember this happened over a decade ago, it all came to light. And then Coach Paterno was, was kind of erased initially, fired as the head coach. He passed away soon after, but his statue was taken down. His name was taken off of the Big Ten Championship trophy. I'm one who thinks that we need to not just remember the biggest mistakes people make, but also look at the whole, whole life. I just want to get your take on that as someone who loved Coach Paterno and probably went through a lot of motions a little over 10 years ago. You want to speak to that? Uh, yeah, actually, it was interesting. Uh, the timing of it all, it, it occurred when I was going through law school. So I was being trained how to think with a legal mind. And I never forget the day that I, uh, the deposition, um, the grand jury, I'm sorry, the grand jury indictment came out that uh, indicting and all, all, all the charges that were brought against uh, Jerry Sandusky. And um, I remember reading it in detail several times and um, being persuaded even just by the consistency of the testimonies of the young people in that were interviewed and uh, in the indictment who were the victims and uh, just it coming to light and to, coming to the realization that it, it was most likely true that this uh, individual who, as you mentioned, unfortunately, uh, Coach Sandusky, uh, he had the entire state of Pennsylvania fooled uh, to believe that he was really like a saint. I mean, he had adopted six children, he and his wife, and uh, he ran a statewide charity that uh, everybody underneath him essentially was doing all the right things. I mean, they had after-school programs, they had summer camps that were benefiting underprivileged children in cities like Philadelphia, Harrisburg, Pittsburgh, and many small, more rural towns all across the state of Pennsylvania doing wonderful things. I mean, actually, these kids, they called them the second mile kids. They would, they'd be at our, around our facility all the time. And a lot of the guys on the team were tutoring them, mentoring them. I used to sometimes take, uh, you know, some of these kids out on a Sunday afternoon. It was almost like a big brother type of program, you know, take them out fishing or take them out just for an ice cream or a dinner or something like that and just get to know them, you know, Mm -hmm. be a positive male role model in their life, which is what so many young guys need these days that maybe don't have one. And, um, so this guy's a saint in the eyes of I mean, absolutely. So it's not yeah. as if, you know, Joe Paterno was turning some type of blind eye. The entire state of Pennsylvania was really, unfortunately, duped. And uh, to believe that uh, it was all, in some many respects, unfortunately, a facade uh, to uh, a medium through which he could um, pursue uh, a very crooked inclination. And, you know, when it all hit the fan and it all came out, it was just a very sad situation. There was a very public outcry, you know, that Coach Return would be fired, which he understood, you know, that if this happened on his watch and if it was all true, then, uh, you know, it, it meant that he was not uh, practicing sufficient oversight. And uh, But, yeah, it was, I mm-hmm. think there was extreme reaction. It was very volatile and, and visceral, understandably, because right. of the nature of the victims. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you're right. I mean, like, you know, th- does it necessarily erase... 40 years of honor and integrity and, uh, you know, 
can everyone say that, let's say, they had not been the person at the top, that they wouldn't have been likewise fooled by this individual who was pulling the wool over so many people's eyes, and not right. just Joe Paterno's. Um, you know, I was I was right there in the building. Um, you knew these people personally. Knew these people and knew mm-hmm. these kids and uh, never, never would have suspected yeah. that anything like that was occurring. Had to be a gut punch for you oh, and for absolutely. other players. Yeah. Oh, and then to hear the media and all the people in the country talking about the Penn State program just trying to really, in many respects, invalidate uh, everything that was done there, everything that was built there, talk about it as if it wasn't really a reality, that it was all some type of facade, which we all knew that it wasn't. Um, It was just, unfortunately, you know, even in churches, you'll have this kind of situation arise where someone with power and prestige and the ability mm-hmm. and the access to take advantage of this type of situation or circ- uh, will will do it. And sometimes the leadership around them doesn't even necessarily know. And it's extremely unfortunate, extremely tragic, but um, it's just unfortunately part of uh, life in this, this side of eternity. On, on the positive side, it seems like Coach Franklin and Penn State have, have really turned things around, not just on the football field, but the culture and, and mm-hmm. everything from what I understand, what I've read. So. They have. And actually, and, and I think some credit as well goes to Coach Bill O'Brien, who uh, left the NFL and was the one who took the reins initially wow. during like, yeah. I guess, what you call the stabilization years, you know, to time when you're trying to just sort of right the ship mm-hmm. and make sure mm-hmm. that this doesn't just like the Titanic break in half and sink into the ocean, which it very well in some respects could have. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Bill O'Brien was instrumental in the uh, sort of the stabilization. And now, um, I guess you'd say Coach Franklin has been instrumental in the revitalization of the program. Yeah. It's important when we talk about human beings. We're talking about flawed people who make mistakes. Joe Paterno's mistake was large. If you if you know the history of this, he didn't adequately deal with uh, a situation that needed to be dealt with. But that does not negate the incredible amount of good the man did for Penn State University specifically, nor in the lives of so many young men like my guest sitting here with me, Kyle Brady, who played for Coach Paterno for four years, was five years in his system before he went into an NFL career. And Kyle, like Coach Paterno, you had other coaches who were great influences in your life. Let's let's talk about that some. You went on, you were drafted first round of the 1995 NFL draft with the ninth pick by the New York Jets, much to the consternation of their fan base. Mm-hmm. And to the disappointment of the head coach at Cleveland at the time, Bill Belichick. That's right. You went to New York. You had, as you described, a wilderness experience with some injuries and also disappointment with the losing and maybe not feeling like you lived up to people's expectations. Exactly. Yeah. What next? Parcells came to town. That's exactly right. And that is what came next. And that was a, a, a big come next kind of factor in, in Coach Parcells. Um, he, For our listeners who are not as much into sports history, we're talking about Bill Parcells, the two-time Super Bowl winning coach of the New York Giants. Yeah, so Coach Parcells, I mean, he had a reputation that very much preceded him. He won, as you said, two championships for the New York with the New York Giants. And New York is a very difficult climate uh, to uh, to do it and have it to have success in. There's just a lot of pressure. You're under an extreme microscope. And uh, Coach Parcells had the personality and the wherewithal and the knowledge and the and, and everything. A larger-than-life character, really, isn't he? In many respects, yes. Yeah. And he had a tremendous sense of humor, tremendous wit, and he really knew how to handle the New York media, which I think is the reason he was able to have so much success there. And uh, he was in New England, though, after he'd left the New York Giants, and he was building a really strong team there uh, and kind of building the, the building blocks of the eventual championship teams that the Patriots would have. But uh, he and the owner there, uh, Robert Kraft, did not see eye to eye. And I guess he felt that Coach or, or Mr. Kraft tried to be more involved in football matters than he should have been 
uh, he said, you're a businessman, let me handle the football matters. And the disagreement got uh, heated enough that uh, Coach Parcells had had enough and he decided to accept the head coaching position of the New York Jets. And that was in 1997. My, it was my going into my third year. So I never forget, you know, the first time I met him, you know, he actually liked me a lot when I was coming out of college. And he actually had said that he felt that I was one of the top five players in the, uh, in the draft that year. And I was very flattered by that because I had sure. a lot of respect for him. He had coached some great tight ends, including mm-hmm. Mark Bavaro, who, mm-hmm. who was one of the best of all time and certainly one of the best in the 80s and 90s. And it was a tough guy, Notre Dame, all that kind of thing. So I, I, I felt a tremendous sense of relief, to be honest, when he was hired. Mm. Because I also had a strong sense that it was probably going to be returned to very much what I was the kind of football I was used to playing at Penn State. There was going to be order, there was going to be discipline, there was going to be accountability and structure and expectations that were within the building that were even greater than from coming from without the building. And it was exactly as, as somewhat really as I expected. I mean, he came in and really righted the ship. He brought uh, immediately like not only new personnel in uh, as far as football players, but also management and scouts. And it was just very, very professionally run. There was no lack of attention to detail. Every stone was turned over in regards to preparation for each opponent. But then there was just, um, got you to start thinking like a winner again. You know, when you lo- lose uh, 28 games over the course of two seasons, there's a uh, confidence blow that occurs in every single one of those guys, mm. whether they want to admit it or not, it's there. There's a sense of doubt, seeds of doubt that maybe you're just not quite good enough or, or what's going on here? Is it something about us? And uh, he came in and he started to not only build the team physically with the kind of players he wanted, but also in regards to our confidence and our sense of, um, uh, you know, just being able to like go out there and have success. And, uh, and he knew it was going to be a, a building block type of process, little by little, practice by practice, day by day, film session by film session, team meeting by team meeting. A lot of it was psychological. And he was, in many respects, I don't know that he has a psychology degree, but he's a master psychologist. He knows how to play guys' cards, push their buttons. I mean, I'll never forget going into his office and he and I having one-on-one meetings. He had the big corner office that overlooked the uh, practice fields and he would have all the blinds shut and he'd have just this little desk lamp uh, light on. And uh, you'd go in there and he'd maybe have some music playing. He'd turn it off and he'd just sit there and look at you in the eye. And I, remember, I remember, this is a story kind of that's coming to my mind right now. I, we played against the, the Chicago Bears and we all had a really good first half. We got out to a, maybe a 15, 20 point lead. But it got really cold in the second half in Chicago. It was November. Wind started coming off the lake, and we were we were freezing. We were running over to the sideline when we were finished a drive and jumping on those warm benches, the heated benches. And he it was really ticking him off that we weren't finishing the way he wanted to. We kind of barely mm-hmm. hung on for the win, and he could see that a lot of it was mental. We just had kind of somewhat checked out on the game, thinking, "Oh, we got this," mm-hmm. and we didn't completely have it. They they nearly came back and won. And uh, I, I did not have a particularly good second half. Missed a couple blocks and made a mental error, I believe. And so he called me into the office, and he just looked at me. He said, "Son." you think that's good enough? He said, because I'll tell you right now, it ain't. And if it don't change, we're going to make some changes. And, and I knew exactly what that meant, meaning you're not going to quite be on the field as much as you might like if, if, it, if you, do, yeah. you have that kind of game again. So he knew how to put the thumb down on you. And, uh, but on the opposite side of the spectrum, though, when you were playing well, which I think that was probably a little bit of a turning point in my time with him, I started playing well. I started being more consistent in practice, more mentally keyed in. Because, you know, as a young player, you're still figuring this out. You know, how to really, how do you dial in every single day in practice, every single day in film session to where you are really, you're hitting on all cylinders. All it takes is a little bit of lack of focus, lack of um, you know preparation for each play, and it and you, it starts to get really sloppy, and you can you can go momentum wise in either direction. So I started to put things together and get better momentum wise, and about four or five games, six games later, I was really playing the way I think he he felt that I could, and uh, he would just come up to me in the stretching line as we were getting ready for practice on a Friday, which is a 
pretty easy day of preparation. It's only two days away from the game, so you're just out there in helmets, no pads, no mm-hmm. no serious physical work. Just uh, last dress rehearsal before we go out there on game day, and he just kind of was looking, spinning his whistle, you know, looking across to the defensive side of the stretch line, saying, "All right, Brady, you show me some things. You're ready. You're ready." And oh my goodness, you just you'd well up with this sense of like, man, like you felt like you could run through a brick wall just by him saying something as simple as that. Like, cause you knew he would not say that unless he, he, he 100% meant it. Meant it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great leader. Before we move to Jacksonville and Tom Coughlin, just touch briefly on your spiritual life, your time in New York. Yeah. So as I mentioned, I mean, the early stages, the first two years were very much wilderness. Right. Watering. So we did touch on that. Exactly. But then, you know, as, as I, thankfully, I mean, I just, I look back on it, I see it all as kind of God's providence. Like he allowed me to kind of mend those injuries and get them healed up. And I had, I had a really you know good off season leading into the 97 season. I felt as good as I'd ever felt. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so 97 was sort of a transition year. We're all learning how to play under Belichick or Parcells. I'm sorry. We went from one and 15 in 1996 to nine and seven in 1997. It was wow. the biggest single That's year, one year turnaround. turnaround in the history of the NFL. Yeah. We played the Detroit Lions in the last game of the year. It was just before Christmas. They had Barry Sanders at the time. Wow. We were winning in the first half. Had we finished out and won that game, we would have gone to the playoffs, which would have been the first time ever that a 1-15 team went the very next year, went 10-6 and six to the playoffs. Missed it by a game, though. They Barry ran, came out and ran a couple ridiculous Barry runs in the second half, spinning around, making people miss, and <laughs> running to the end zone. So it was bound to happen. It's just, uh, yeah, we didn't quite enough, put enough points on the board offensively, but we all felt very a lot better about ourselves going into the 98 season. And then really things came came together for me a, a, a tremendous amount in the 98 season. I went into the season with a lot more confidence, a good feeling about who I was as a player and my role in the, in the Parcells offense. And my role that particular season expanded pretty dramatically. They started to see that I had a good bit of athleticism for a guy my size. Two, at the time, I was maybe 265, 268, could move really well, had some good agility. So they started using me as an H-back, which was a lot of fun. I wasn't just a stationary tight end. I had a chance to line up at like the f- traditional fullback yeah. position, you know, behind the quarterback, moved around on the offensive line in motion and I was being used to pull and trap and lead up on the plays against linebackers because I, I, w- I was a very physical player and I took pride in that. And being 265, there was not too many linebackers that I was going to go against that were going to physically overmatch me. Yeah. And you know, oftentimes those guys were in the 240s and they were basically tasked with, if there's a lead blocker coming in the, at you in the hole, you've got to challenge them. You've got to stop stop mm-hmm. that lead blocker and, and uh, you know attempt to make the tackle. And that was oftentimes a, a matchup that I, you know, had, had a physical advantage in, in addition to being, you know, aggressive enough to where I could, um, I, I would take the block to them. Whereas sometimes defensive players try to take the physical game to the offensive players. I was, I took pride in taking the off the, the uh, physical game to them. All right. So Jacksonville, you transitioned to Jacksonville. What year was your first season in Jacksonville? So 1999. 1999. Yeah, so Tom Coughlin, I mean, to give a little background as to why I ended up here, he coached also under Bill Parcells. So he would be considered a Bill Parcells disciple. Uh, Along with Belichick did staffs. the same. Belichick also yeah. was a, new, a Bill Parcells disciple. That so coaching they learned, tree. Yeah. Exactly. They learned how to coach and how to run a program from Coach Bill Parcells. And um, so I think what Coach Coughlin saw out of me in 1998 when I was having that kind of expanded role in the offense is like, I could, I could do some things with that guy. And he knew that any player who could sort of be successful in a Bill Parcells run program would do just fine you in would, a program. Would that, fit well in your, you would fit well in his program as well. And, yeah. and when I got down here, it was uh, pretty much the same schedule, the same expectations, the same culture. Uh, just, you know, it was manifested a little differently because Coach sure. Coughlin's his personality, per- his own personality was a little different yeah. than Coach Parcells. So, um, but it was 
it was it was a somewhat easy transition in that respect. Still a little bit stressful because you're changing. You have all new teammates. You're in an all new place. I mean, what they list some of the most stressful things in life uh, are oftentimes a move, you know, a death mm-hmm. in the family, a, mm-hmm. a marriage, a divorce, all these different things. So I was definitely under some stress, but it was it was nice that I came to a culture that was very similar to the one that I'd left. Ninety nine was your first season. Was that the year that Marino played his last playoff game here in Jacksonville, and yeah. you guys just routed him? I mean, it's so funny, and that to me seems like such an interesting like thing that 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 had happened. That that way because my first game playing for the New York Jets, we played in Miami at Joe Robbie. It was at the time it was called Joe Robbie right. Stadium in 1995. It was the hottest game on record in the history of Joe Robbie Stadium. I was starting on offense and every special teams. I probably lost 12 pounds that day. I was cramping by the end of the day wow. and uh, I did not play well. The whole team didn't play well. Dan Marino went out and lit us up. He, they mm. beat us like 56 to 10. And then in Dan Marino's last game, I happened to be on the field and we beat them like by 60. It was like, it we was scored over 60 points. Yeah. It was definitely a, a not the way that I think Dan Marino wanted to go out. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, that was a heck of a team. We went 14 and two. The only team that beat us that whole season was the Titans. Titans. They just they Three really times. had our number. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they were a team. They were a good team. They were yeah, they a physical went. team like we were, built very similarly the way we were. Jeff Fisher was their head coach, and mm-hmm. he, he was a little bit cocky and uh, you know about the success he had against the Jacksonville Jaguars. But hey, hey what you got to do is you got to go out on the field and you got to um, take it from them. And now he ran into... The greatest show on turf. That's right, he did. And yeah. so, you know, even if we had beaten the Titans in the AFC Championship game, which we were up 14 to 10, and we were physically pretty dominant in the first half, we just didn't have the points to show for it because we yeah. had a couple turnovers in the second half. I mean, the biggest, the, the most critical statistic in NFL games for the average fan that doesn't know is turnovers. Mm-hmm. If you give another NFL offense multiple, uh, several opportunities at the ball and at scoring uh, beyond yours, it's very unlikely you're going to win. So yeah. we unfortunately had too many turnovers that day, but there's no guarantees had we even beaten the titans that we go out there because that that girl greatest uh, show on turf team was a special team they're extremely talented so mm-hmm. i think we would have given them a heck of a game just like the titans did but it would have just come down to probably who made the plays at the end of the game just like yeah, it did now. it's hard one. to say mm-hmm. time under coughlin one big lesson you learned from tom coughlin uh, consistency. You know, I was developing my consistency uh, mm-hmm. when I was under Bill Parcells with the Jet with the Jets, and when I came down here, and and confidence actually, he he showed more confidence in me than any coach I'd ever had. Bill Parcells showed a lot of confidence in me, but mm-hmm. I think Coughlin even believed in me even even more than he did, and uh, he wanted me to have a more expanded role in the passing game, which I was actually able to have, which I was very thankful for because up until the time my time in the New York. Each season, I was getting a little better as a receiver, and in the, in I, I had 30 catches. You know, my 1998 season, my last season with the Jets. But um, you know, my my second year down here, though, I kind of was able to put it all together and have what I felt like was the most well-rounded season I ever had, which was I you know, caught for 64 balls, over 700 yards in receiving, and that was all while being one of the top blocking tight ends yeah. in the NFL. So there was people at that time that were saying, "Hey, this guy is legit. He's." He's everything they said they were. He was coming out of college, so that was very satisfying. Because you know, even though we're not supposed to necessarily be striving constantly for worldly praise and the approval of men, it's nice to get some acknowledgement and affirmation yeah, of your hard work from and so much hard you, work. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Then the following years, things started kind of going a little south for the Jaguars in terms of uh, record, if I remember correctly. But you got to play. Let's just fast forward here for time's sake. You got to finish your career out. With the goat, you got to go to New England <laughs> mm-hmm. and play, have a, another very special season, somewhat maybe reminiscent for you of your senior year of college, right? Yeah, 
in many respects. Yeah, actually. And that's a good way to put it because uh, that senior year in, uh, at Penn State University, you know, we went out there and we made it look easy. We were putting mm-hmm. up 38 points a game. I mean, it was an electrifying like offense that could just explode on you at any moment for an 80 yard touchdown. And it happened very often. And But that kind of thing doesn't happen that often in the NFL. And you got professional athletes who are all doing it for a living and the ability levels are so evenly distributed across teams. Uh, you know, oftentimes, and that's what makes the game so exciting. You know, most oftentimes the games end in a seven points or less spread, uh, mm-hmm. you know, winning margin. And, uh, but that 2007 New England Patriots team was by far probably the most explosive team in the history of the NFL up until that point. And, uh, you know, Bill Belichick had gone out that particular offseason and he had already won three of the previous, this is something to give a little backdrop as well. He'd already won three of the previous six championships at that point. Every year it seemed like if they weren't in the Super Bowl, they were in the AFC Championship. So they're always on the cusp. Mm-hmm. And so they were just playing, performing at an extremely high level. That offseason they went out and made a number of uh, free, free agent acquisitions, including Randy Moss, Wes Welker, Dante Stallworth, Adelius Thomas, linebacker from the Ravens, and brought all these guys together. And I mean, one thing about that Tom Brady was excellent at was um, incorporating those pieces as quickly as possible into his offense and developing a rapport, mm-hmm. uh, both communication, mentally, and also physically on the field. So, I mean, it was definitely the hardest. I, I, I could see almost immediately the reason that the Patriots had the amount of success they did. I mean, leadership top to bottom was excellent uh, from the management to the coaches to the players. I mean, and that team of players had a greater sense of internal accountability than any group I'd ever been around. I mean, they held each other to an incredibly high standard about what is the standard here that we mm-hmm. that, we're, that we work at. I mean, whether it's in the weight room, whether it's in the film room, whether it's on the practice field, everything you did, there was a standard like, we are going to make this perfect and we are going to rep it until it's perfect. And um, so it was just a, uh, the thing was run on all cylinders and, and it was coming out on game day. I mean, we were sitting there... <laughs> Uh, watching practices during preseason, there would literally be some practices offensively where the ball would not touch the ground. Brady would complete like a hundred, some practices, a hundred percent of his passes. And um, you just and you'd, you'd played with a great quarterback here in Jacksonville also. I mean, so Mark Grinnell, David Garrard, Vinny yeah. Testaverde, Boomer Esiason. I played with some really good ones yeah. and some very professional ones, but this was unlike anything I'd ever seen. I mean, and it was at the pro level. So these are like the best of the best performing at an incredibly high level. And he and, was just um, at a different level himself. And I just thought, this is really going to be something to see. Like when we take this machine out onto the field on game day, if it runs like this, it is going to be really interesting to see what happens. And and we boy, did you there. ever have see something happen that year? And in the first half of the season, we were beating teams by twenty points, thirty points. Extremely unusual in the NFL, scoring fifty some yeah. points on the Cowboys. The parody. It's over not like college on the Bills. I mean, it was. Yeah, it was. It was almost like you know a, a top ten D one program was playing like one of those programs. It's like from a hundred down to hundred and twenty. It was that type of. Um, you just don't see that in the NFL. The talent. It appeared to be that type of talent discrepancy. Yeah. No, you really don't. And it was just. It was a joy to be a part of. It was really a cool experience. And. Um, so making all those 72 ending. Dolphins nervous that year because you went undefeated in the regular season. You mm-hmm. go, you you make it to the playoffs, you get to the Super Bowl, and then you have the New York Giants facing you. Oh, yeah. and they, you With know, Coach. There's, with Coach Tom Coughlin. Yeah, exactly. Who uh, ironically <laughs> brought me to Jacksonville. And uh, that was the only positive thing about that. I was going to say, there had to be, that was maybe one thing you were able to I mean, be happy for him on the other sideline. Interestingly enough, I walked off the field and uh, obviously heartbroken and, and 
felt like it was surreal. Like, did this really just happen? Uh, when I was out in the parking lot after the game was over, um, Coach Coughlin, I ran into him just before he went into the media tent, Is which I'm sure right? was a, an amazing moment for him because, you know, yeah. dealing with the New York media and winning a championship there, he was going to be his opportunity to finally get that affirmation like, yes, I'm the kind of coach that can actually win a Super Bowl. So I just went up to him, I shook his hand, and I said, Coach, is that as I feel for myself and my teammates, I am very happy for you today. Mm -hmm. And uh, he mm -hmm. said, you know, and you know, it's, it's so interesting. This is what he said to me. He grabbed my, grabbed my hand real firmly, looked me in the eye and said, Brady, we should have done this together. Like meaning back in 99, you know, we yeah. had a team that was at this kind of level and could have done this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And um, interestingly enough, though, to give a little bit of context, uh, and this is all stuff that's included in documentaries, including the man in the arena. You can watch, there's okay. one particular yeah, episode that, just yeah. about the 2007 season and mm -hmm. Brady's take on it and the other guy, some other guys uh, on our team, their take on it. And also Michael Strahan was interviewed throughout it because he was talking about the Giants season and how totally contradictory their season was to us, how different it was to ours, especially in the early stages. They, yeah. they were doing poorly. I think they might have been 500 after halfway through the season. They were talking, there's rumblings of fire in Coughlin and wow. they just kind of caught the, the momentum and the fire at the right time. And yeah. you always want to be like, as they say, the ascending you want to gel November, at the December. end of the season. And yep. that's exactly what they did. And they caught us at the end of the season. Our last game of the year was against the Giants. And it was a, uh, I believe, a Sunday night game. It was broadcast, like, I think on all the major networks because it was, like, history making. And mm -hmm. um, Oh, yeah. And it ended up being a complete dogfight. But it was a shootout, interestingly enough. it was mm -hmm. We ended up having to go well into the fourth quarter to get a touchdown and make it 38-35 to beat them. It was on long ball to Randy Moss down the right sideline. And, um, and I think that those guys looked at each other and they said, wait a minute now. Now, if that's the best the NFL has the offer to offer, and that may be the best of all time, well, we're pretty darn good. Mm -hmm. And uh, and they were. They were pretty darn good. And they really played us a somewhat of a vanilla game plan. They didn't do a whole lot of anything fancy on defense because mm -hmm. they knew they were in the playoffs as well. And they didn't want to show anybody in the uh, playoffs that they were going to be playing too much, you know, of what might be up their sleeve. So they... You know, more power to them. You know, I, I do really give it to the, the, them credit where credit is due. We might play them 10 times and we beat them eight. Right. And on that particular night, they played their heads off. I mean, they played out of their minds. Their defense, uh, they put together a defensive line package with OCU Manura, Michael Strahan, uh, a guy last name Alford, I'm forgetting his name right now, Justin Tuck. And mm -hmm. these guys, they didn't do anything different than necessarily what other defensive lines would do, like stunts and games and ETs and things like that, all these technical things that defensive lines will do. They did it more effectively and with more speed than any team I'd ever seen, I'd ever been around. And a lot of times I was, um, sometimes I'm going out, but I'm watching the film on the sideline, a lot of, you know, going out for a pass. Sometimes I'm actually in in what's called max protection, where I'm in there to help protect against these guys getting the tom. And um, when I was in there, sometimes like I, I, you know, no one would loop out. No one, I would have no responsibility other than maybe chip the defender to the inside of me. And I'm just watching these guys. I'm like, man, they are getting on our edge. It's called getting on the, the offensive players' edges fast. And and when once you get on an offensive players' edges and you got the momentum, it's it's pretty much over. You're going to be able to get to the quarterback. And they just they just executed a higher level than anyone I'd ever been around. Wow. At that, at, at any particular time, and that's what it—that's honestly what it required to beat us. That we we were playing that well, and at that later stage in the season, we weren't playing quite as well. I think we had lost a degree of energy with the amount that we had to expend in getting there uh, undefeated, but um, we were still playing at a pretty high level, and they were able to just exceed yeah. that slightly. I got to ask you this one. I know it's never about one play, but the Tyree catch. 
<laughs> oh, it was a critical play. Had, had they not Did had it, you, they don't win the game. Were you like, I can't believe I just saw that when it happened, or was it on the replay board and you went, oh my? What was that like? To, yeah. To, was it shocking? All on the sideline, was it as crazy as it was for the fans when we were watching it? Mm hmm. It really was. Yeah, I, I was sitting on the sideline as an offensive player watching our defense. For one thing, they had to start that drive on about their own 18-yard line. And uh, the score at that time was 14-10. to 10. We were winning, which, again, speaks to the tenacity of their defense to be able to hold us a 38-point a, a game team. It's yeah. only 14 at that point. But we got a touchdown. Um, Randy or Tom threw Randy a slant in the end zone with maybe two minutes left. So they had to go 82 yards. And I, I felt, I, I was like, you know, the way our defense is playing tonight, this is going to be a really tough task. They ended up getting the ball just across the mid you know, the 50 yard line. And I believe it was maybe third and 16, third and 18, whatever it was, yeah. really low percentage play in the NFL. And, and you never, that's something that's a cardinal rule in, in, in any level of football is do not throw the ball down the middle of the field late. And that's exactly what he did. He was basically almost ruled down due to being in the grasp mm -hmm. of one of our defensive linemen. The referee said he was actually on the fringe of blowing the whistle to, calling the play dead. Mm -hmm. Eli, Eli escapes miraculously from it. He's the ball downfield. Tyree, uh, David Tyree, who is really just a special teams player. Great guy. Had a very a good career as a special teams player. Yeah, and but never to, known. to the glory of God, he, he used his platform yeah. in that moment that he had, and he yep. gave the glory to Christ. It was, he did. It was no, cool. And he had a touchdown earlier in the game, so out of yeah. nowhere, he's like one of the big impact He's players a big hero. Yeah. On offense, which no one would have ever expected. That's... And, um, you know, and Rodney Harrison, the defensive back who was defending on the play against him, he was one of the best uh, postseason defensive backs in the history of the game. One of the best defensive backs in the history of the game. Mm -hmm. The postseason, I think he had more interceptions than anyone ever. And if you watch the replay in super slow motion, you actually see him do exactly what he's supposed to do, which is rake at the ball. Mm -hmm. But as he was raking at it, he actually pushed the ball more firmly into Tyree's head. Had he raked it at a different angle, the ball pops right out. It just so happened that he pushed it down into his head and pushed him onto the ground. So he was down and, and it almost ensured that the ball stayed on his helmet because it was such a tenuous way to be holding onto the ball right. with one hand against your helmet. Had he raked it, you can almost kind of see it physically. Like if yeah. he raked it the right way, it's going to pop right out. And and we all just looked at each other like, it, did that just happen? And it's almost like there was other plays in that game too that I, I don't have enough time to talk about, but missed interceptions by our defensive backs who, who didn't drop any all year long. They could have been pick sixes. All these things, that the ways you felt like the ball just was not bouncing in our direction. And then we had that play. It was almost like, wow. As, as followers of Christ, I don't know how we utilize this term, but the word destiny sometimes comes into these conversations in mm -hmm. sports when you see these things happen. It's like a team of destiny. It started to feel that way. Everyone yeah. was calling us the team of destiny because here we are 18-0 in the Super Bowl and it just didn't, it looked like there was just too much momentum to stop that 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 boulder that was rolling downhill. But um, when things like that started to happen that night, uh, I think a lot of us, we didn't really say it or acknowledge it to each other, but now we probably, we, we would, that it just, it just was not our night. It was yeah. not meant to be. And the old proverbial saying in sports that you hear so often is, this is why we play the game. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, oh, probably computer scenarios would have run that whole thing out, you know, simulators, and probably come up with us as the as the winner. And and, and then maybe it would have really happened. 95, eight or nine 90, 8% of the time, times yeah. Of, times out of 10. Probably but so. that particular night was just one of those 10 or 20% nights that uh, things went well for them and they didn't for us. So you got married in Jacksonville in your years in Jacksonville in 2000, had a family, decided to settle here. I want to close out, if you don't mind, Kyle, with just some shotgun questions here. Favorite venue to play in outside of the teams you played for when you would travel as a college player? Favorite venue? As a college player, um, University of Michigan. The big house. The big house. It was quite a place as far as the tradition, the architecture of the stadium. It was very, it was beautiful. Okay. 
favorite venue in the NFL outside of your cities that you played in? Mm. Some of the more difficult venues were domed stadiums. They were incredibly loud, especially when you're playing like Indianapolis Colts up there. The, the noise when it would get trapped in there, you couldn't, you couldn't hear a thing. Um, trying to think of who else uh, had great fields. I mean, Houston, actually, even though there wasn't a huge tradition in Houston with yeah. the Texans, their their field surface was unbelievable. It was like carpet, but it was real grass. And then and playing in Dallas uh, with the big star and you know all the tradition of yeah. the Cowboys Stadium, that was fun too. Especially growing up as in our era, at our age. Yeah. Oh, and playing against the Steelers because growing up in Pennsylvania, you know, yeah. playing against the Pennsylvania teams at Philadelphia Eagles and then over in Pittsburgh, that was that was a big thrill as well. Is it true about Philadelphia Eagles fans? Oh, they're probably some of the nastiest that you'll yeah. ever come across. There's no doubt. So the reputation is, is real. Oh, yeah. You've got the ball as a tight end. You catch a pass. Who do you least want in all your playing years to be hitting you? Hmm. That's a good one. There's a couple linebackers that were extremely tough that uh, I played against. One of them was Sam Mills. I remember I got hit by him going over the middle one time, and that was a, he was an extremely physical player. I took a hit from Donovan Darius, our old strong safety here with the Jacksonville Jaguars when I was playing yeah. for the Jets, and I caught a ball in the playoffs. And this was at a time when this hit was perfectly legal, actually. He led with his head, hit me oh. right in the temple. I was out cold for about two seconds, and that was the worst concussion I ever had as a football player. And thankfully, they don't allow that kind of hitting anymore. But um, yeah. yeah, I definitely played against some uh, some pretty big hitters. Jesse Tuggle as well. I just remembered him. Atlanta Falcons middle linebacker. He was a fire plug, and he would lay the wood. Hardest guy to block. Uh, when Bryce Pop was with the Buffalo Bills, Bills. Mm-hmm. he was an excellent player. And, you know, his teams would be so focused on um, stopping like Bruce Smith and some of their other defenders that uh, he just had a really good speed, very good hands and quickness. And then he would sometimes, you know, mix that up with just kind of bull rushing you and stuff like that and coming right into you. So you didn't always know what you were going to get, what type of play. He was, sometimes he was finesse, sometimes he was power, and it made it really difficult to deal with. Most entertaining teammate in the locker room. Mm. Oh, I played with a bunch of guys who were clowns and funny. I mean, uh, Adelius Thomas was really funny with the uh, Patriots. He was always cutting up and laughing. And then uh, and Randy was as well. He was pretty vocal. Uh, Moss. And then um, with the Jaguars, we had a bunch of guys. I mean, Zach Wiegert, who was an offensive lineman. And, oh, Brant Boyer. He, he, he's the guy that many people would, might, might not remember. He was a special teams guru, but he was just a clown and always messing with people. I mean, the coaches included. Like, he, he had a way and a personality just of creating levity, you know, yeah. and just lightheartedness. And, and I was sometimes a little bit of a clown. Some of the guys in the Jaguars, actually, for, for a couple of years I was here, yeah. I, I used to really have fun. I used to do these skits once in a while where I'd make up these like fictional characters. This is during most of the Coughlin era yeah. when, you know, Co- Coach Coughlin, he he was serious about winning. You know, he was very competitive and sometimes he would be always pressing us and driving us. So you needed a little bit of comic relief sometimes yeah. when you're just in the locker room together. And uh, sometimes I'd provide that. I'd do a little bit to provide that. Just a few more quick questions here. The opponent that blew you away the most in terms of watching them play on the field, do their do their craft. Mm-hmm. You mentioned well, Barry Sanders earlier, so yeah, was him, he in that yeah, air? Watching, uh, watching what I watched 2007 season, the um, the offensive firepower, you know, watching Tom and the precision with which he approached the game and the, the accuracy he had on his throws and the touch and everything like that. And then Randy Moss, that was an amazing treat to watch him when he was still in his prime and just running past people, his unbelievably long strides. He was like a... His leaping a ability. To, and, oh, it was like watching a man among boys. He'd jump up over <sighs> defenders. He was probably the best high point wide receiver I've ever seen and probably mm-hmm. maybe in the history of the game. He would he understood completely how to, how to high point the ball. You know, and, and he was six foot five, six six, great leaping ability. I mean, he'd sometimes be a foot, foot and a half over other guys grabbing the ball. It just was like a man among boys. And then, you think he could have played in the NBA if he'd have focused on basketball? I think so. Yeah, yeah. All right, spiritual level. 
favorite Bible verse? Uh, Colossians 3.23 was always one of my favorites. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart is unto the Lord. And uh, I just always tried to take that mantra no matter what I was approaching or trying to do in life, whether it was something that, uh, familiar like football or something new like law school. And uh, maybe, you know, just uh, that approach of like, hey, I'm, I don't maybe understand this. I don't have my head completely around it, but I'm going to just give everything I have. And at the end of the day, that's all that God expects of me. Real quickly, let our audience know, what are you doing right now? So even though I'm a licensed attorney here in the state of Florida, I actually spent a few years in finance prior to law school. So I kind of have a hybrid like real estate finance firm. Uh, my company um, that I own and manage, it, it, it partners with local Northeast Florida-based builders and contractors on what I guess what I would call real, real estate finance solutions. Uh, my company will take oftentimes a first position mortgage on, uh, uh, let's say, a spec home. Like a, a builder will find a lot. They want to build it and develop it vertically, build a home. And so uh, we'll, we'll offer them construction financing. Sometimes we'll take a joint venture position in that uh, deal. And um, it's just fun. I've always enjoyed real estate. And I guess, you know, developing the comfort level that I did in studying finance and law for as long as I did gave me the, a, a comfort level to say, okay, I'm confident enough to feel like I know what I'm doing here to uh, run this company. Kyle Brady, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure to have you on Sound of Truth. Thanks, Brett. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sound of Truth. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review it. Also, tell your friends about it. Thanks. Music is by Canon and is used by permission. Sound of Truth podcast is produced in collaboration with Harvest Jacksonville. It is copyrighted by Brett A. Mirani, 2022.